All right. Well, reading through the book of Acts, we're working our way through this. We're um, getting close to the end-ish. We have about 10 chapters left, but um, we are seeing a a theme coming around over and over again as we work through this book. And I feel a little bit like a broken record sometimes because of that, but I'm just, we just have to do what's here. And, and one of the things that becomes abundantly clear from this book and really the whole Bible, but this book in particular, is that following Jesus doesn't mean we're going to have an easy, comfortable life. And I, I know, I feel like I say that every Sunday lately, um, but it's good for us to know that and probably need to keep getting reminded of that that Christians don't live ultimately for comfort. We don't ultimately live for what we can have here and now, though we can certainly be grateful to the Lord for what he does give us. um, That's not really the goal. The goal is to have the long view of eternity. And Peter, uh, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, picks up on this when he says it this way. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, that is clear-headed, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, The call of the Christian life is to set our minds and hopes fully on the grace of God that will be brought to us in a future sense at the coming of Jesus Christ. So while we have the grace of God now, thankfully, we will ultimately receive the fullness of grace at his coming. That's that's the picture of the scriptures that we see. Peter then gets into the end of his letter and he reminds us in chapter five that we will suffer for a little while, but then enter into the inheritance of grace. The Apostle Paul's life teaches us this, models it for us beautifully in the book of Acts. And as we get into chapter 18, we've already seen the Apostle Paul go through many hardships as he's sought to bring the gospel of grace through Jesus to the, to the Gentiles. He, we've seen by this point in Paul's ministry that he has taken a lot of hits, both literally and figuratively. He was nearly killed at Lystra, if you remember that from a few chapters back. He was, he was stoned. He was, uh, they thought his, his, the, uh, the fellow disciples who were with him thought he was dead. He pops up. He's like, oh, I'm alive. Let's go to the next town. Um, he's been run out of almost every town he's gone to. We saw that most recently in Thessalonica and Berea. Um, he's now gone through Athens, uh, where, he re- where he preached a gospel message and just didn't really land on very many people, which is, I'm sure, disappointing to him. John Mark caused, or I should say, there was a rift between him and Barnabas about John Mark. I don't think we should blame John Mark for the rift. But the, the, this argument that had really broken out between Paul and prob- arguably, I think, his best friend in the ministry and maybe the world split ways and are no longer friends because of a disagreement. Over and over again, we're seeing Paul deal with with hardship. And that's partly just living in a world that's fallen and broken. And partly engaging in gospel ministry makes things difficult. It's not an easy calling. But 
we're, we've seen Paul take a lot of hits. And I, I say all that, I give you all of that kind of background because I think what chapter 18 is going to show us is that Paul is basically by this point about to burn out. And, and we're going to see how he deals with that and how the Lord Jesus deals with that in his life. So let's look at verse one of Acts 18. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. All right, so he's in Corinth now. Now he was in Athens. He was, he was in Athens because if we follow the trajectory of his story, he was in Thessalonica, got run out of town, went to Berea, got run out of town, uh, got onto a boat. Some of the people in Berea were like, we got to get you safe. Let's get you to Athens. So he sails to Athens, but he escapes Athens, so qu- or Berea so quickly that Silas and Timothy, who are traveling with him, didn't get on the boat. Why they didn't get on the boat, I'm not sure, but they either got left behind because of the quickness of getting Paul out or, or they had something that Paul wanted them to do and they were lower profile and maybe weren't as at risk. Who knows? But Paul goes to Athens and his intention is to wait for them there. But then he goes through this whole thing, preaches to the Athenians, and now we're told he leaves Athens, but who's not there yet is Silas and Timothy. He leaves before they even get to Athens. I don't know why he does this. It doesn't say. But he, he goes to Corinth. Corinth was about a 50-mile, roughly, uh, a trek from Athens by land. He, he takes that journey. And uh, he is... Uh, in a city that has now become very famous because we have a couple of letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We know a lot about Corinth from both Paul's letters to them and just the historical information about them because it was a big city in a really prominent place. And so there's a lot to know about Corinth. And I'll just give you some background on Corinth quickly and then we'll keep going through the text. But Paul writes more words to the Corinthians the Christians in Corinth, than any other church that he writes to. The Romans, the church in Rome that he wrote to, that bo- the book of Romans is 16 chapters. Uh, but 1 Corinthians is also 16 chapters. And then there's a whole second letter to Corinth of a 13 chapters. And there's no other church in the New Testament that gets as much written to them from the Apostle Paul. This tells us some things. It tells us at least one thing that Paul really loved these people and wanted to care for them even from a distance. And it also shows us, especially as we read the content of the two letters he wrote, that they were a very messy church that had a lot of problems. And he had to work through those things. And a lot of the problems that they dealt with were cultural problems coming into the church. Because Corinth was a very massive city. It was flourishing in the days of Paul. It had political power, commerce, and sexual immorality. Those are the three kind of hallmarks of Corinth in Paul's day. Politically, it was a powerful place because it was a Roman colony and it was the capital of a province of, of the Roman Empire called Achaia. And, uh, and so it was, it was the seat of, of Roman authority in that region of the world. Commercially, it was very important because it was located geographically Oh, in this perfect place where they could have north and south trade routes and east and west trade routes. It was on a peninsula. And so you had access to the seas on both sides. You had, 
you had trade routes north and south as well. And so that perfect location made it a very wealthy place to live because there was so much uh, commerce happening and everybody living there was doing pretty well if you weren't in like a slave class or something. But, um, but that was the issue. And then, then the third category, this moral category, the sexual immorality issue that Corinth became famous for uh, is probably the most common thing that we think of when we think of Corinth because of how much Paul had to address that issue with this church later on. Um, but in fact, the whole, the, there was a Greek word that was invented just to describe sexual immorality, and it was this word, Corinthianize. So if you were going to Corinthianize, that meant you were going to be gross, basically. Okay. All these factors made ministry very challenging for Paul uh, and for anybody. Um, these, these were major issues. And the issues of power, wealth, and sexual, quote-unquote, freedom, though it's all ultimately slavery, as we know, these were, the, these were significant barriers to the gospel. And, and so one of the things that Paul had to confront in this church were those issues of wealth, which Jesus says it's more difficult for a rich person to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, he doesn't mean by that, as he makes clear in the next verse, that rich people can't be saved because all things are possible with God. But he's making the point that wealth can become a, a major barrier to the gospel because of the comfort and security that that leads us to believe we have. That, that creates a problem. And that, I think, is largely the issue in Corinth is that their wealth and the, and the seeming comfort that they had in earthly things is a kind of the trickling down of all the other issues. But here's where we're at. Paul is at this point, he's, he's spent. He's, he's exhausted. I think we would say today that he was nearly burned out. Uh, that's how we would frame it. And he, we actually get a sense of where Paul is in Corinth emotionally and spiritually because in his first letter to them, he tells them, of what his condition was when he first came to them. Verse, 1 Corinthians 2.3 tells us, he says, and I, when I was with you, oh, excuse me, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He, he was at a point where he was not feeling strong. He was not feeling confident. He was, he was exhausted. And this passage is going to show us Really, all of Acts up to this point has shown us why that is, all of the things that Paul's had to go through, and now he's entering into a really difficult place, and it's just taking a toll on him. So as we work through this passage, we're going to look at it in five stages. Uh, basically, Luke is going to recount this multi-year ministry that Paul has in Corinth. He Aside from the Ephesian church, Paul spent probably more time in Corinth than anywhere else. Even at this point, even as he's in fear and trembling and weakness, he spends multiple years there, probably two and a half to three. As we'll see in the text, he spends a good amount of time in Corinth. But as he spends these years, there's multiple stages of ministry that he goes through. And that's what Luke is recounting for us. So let's look at the first stage. It's in verses two through four. It says, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So the apostle Paul has left Athens and he meets up with this Jewish married couple named Priscilla and Aquila or Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, they're in Corinth, though they're not from Corinth, they're from Italy. And before that, they're from a different place and from Pontus. But they leave Italy and they settle in Corinth because Emperor Claudius has uh, an anti-Semitic policy that basically blames all the Jews in Rome for all the problems. Um, and he kicks them all out. He, he forces them all away. And so the Jewish people from Rome are now scattered to other parts of the empire. Um, Corinth was a, a place that was open for them to go. So Aquila and Priscilla move there and there they meet Paul. And Paul finds out as he's meeting with these, this couple that they do the same kind of job. They both make tents. And, and so tent making was, was more or less leather working in those days because tents were made from leather then. And so they probably did other leather work and repair besides just making tents itself. But they're probably the main bulk of their business was building uh, or creating these large leather tents. And so Paul sets up shop with them. Perhaps he was employed by them. They probably already had a pretty thriving business in Corinth. He was like, hey, I can do this too. And they were like, cool, we can use your help. And so he goes to work for them while uh, doing that and earning a living through repairing these tents and doing this leather work. He's also going to the synagogue and he's preaching the gospel to the Jews and the Greeks on weekends and in evenings when he's not working with Aquila and Priscilla. Well, we'll call this is the, is the first stage of Paul's ministry to Corinth, which is his tent making stage. And tent making is a term we use now to refer to people who go onto the mission field and work a job uh, to either get into the country that they're wanting to serve in or to just have a natural in for conversing with people. But their real work is gospel ministry. And they're using, rather than raising all their support to live just you know, independently, they take a job and they work to earn their, their living while doing that work. And Paul uses this approach. This is why we call it tent making is because this is the strategy Paul uses in Corinth. Um, ultimately, this is modeling for us how all Christians can and should leverage our, our jobs and our employment for the advancement of the gospel. Most of you are not going to be employed by the local church. I know I'm the weird one here. Okay, I get that. But you guys have this amazing opportunity to use the skills and gifts that God has given you and the people he's putting in your, in your workplace with you to share Christ and to help advance the gospel. We see Paul modeling that. So that's stage one. Let's keep going though, because we've got quite a, quite a lot of ground to cover here. Verse five through eight says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, you, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, so now, finally, Silas and Timothy get there. They show up to Corinth. Now, they probably had to go through Athens and go, where's Paul? They're searching for him. Somebody finally was like, ah, he's not here. He went to Corinth. So now they got to go to Corinth. And they finally meet up. But it says this. It says that when they got there, uh, Paul was then occupied with the word. This is the second stage of Paul's ministry to Corinth. And it's what we'll call full-time ministry. Paul is no longer making tents, as far as we can tell. He's now occupied. That's his occupation, is the word of God. He is doing this probably because Silas and Timothy, having come from Macedonia, were able to gather up some offerings from the churches that they had planted there that, had, that they were able to take with them and give to Paul for his living. This is something that Paul himself acknowledges happened from the churches in Macedonia when he writes to the church in Philippi. He thanks them at the end of the letter to the Philippians for their financial support of his ministry. This is part of why he's writing to them, to encourage them and to thank them for financially supporting them. Philippi was in Macedonia. So whether it was exactly the Philippian church that, that gave him the money or other churches in the region of Macedonia doesn't really matter at this point. The point is, is that there's clearly a New Testament pattern of the churches supporting Paul financially. And so what's probably happened is he's been caring for himself financially by tent making, now there's an influx of money from the churches that are supporting him and that gives him the freedom to then dedicate his time to the ministry of the word. And, and so this is, this is what he begins to do. He's, he starts to uh, testify to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. But verse six tells us, like the pattern seems to be through most of Acts, that they oppose this idea. They're not mostly receptive, though there are some, as we'll see some notable ex exceptions to this. Most of the Jewish people are rejecting Paul's message. And look at how Paul responds to that in verse six. They opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He, he has a, I, I would call this an emotional outburst, um, probably because the dude is just tired of it, right? Like this is not the first time that the Jewish people have reviled him, opposed him, um, and he is just angry. So he's just shaking out his clothes. He's shaking out the dust and he's like, this is, I'm done with you people. Um, but notice then in the, he moves to, this is funny. He moves to a Gentile named Titius Justus, his house, who is a Gentile, but a worshiper of God. So a guy who's probably a, a Greek a convert to Judaism. His house is next door to the synagogue. <laughs> so like, he's like, oh, I'm done with all you people. But then he just moves right next door to the synagogue. So, okay, interesting choice there. Um, but then we're also told in verse eight that Crispus, this other guy, is the ruler of the synagogue, meaning he's like the lead guy there in that synagogue. He believes in the Lord through Paul and his whole household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul is having a really, I mean, comparatively to other places he's been, actually a pretty successful mission here. 
Titius Justus has embraced the gospel, has invited Paul to live with him and give him a place to stay. Crispus, like the main guy in the synagogue, is a Christian along with now his whole family. That's a win, right? Like that's a big deal to get the guy who's like in charge of the synagogue to believe in Jesus is a big deal. And so he's got some good things happening. In fact, we're told that many of the Corinthians, that probably is a Jewish and Gentile context of Corinthians, are believing in the Lord and are being baptized. This is great compared to a lot of the other things that he's seen. And yet what happens next is really interesting. In verse 9 and 10, look at these verses with me. It says, And the Lord said to Paul, so Jesus is saying something to Paul one night in a vision. We should pay attention to this probably, right? The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I'm, I'm going to call this the third stage of Paul's ministry, which is his, his, uh, his stage of fear and weakness. This is interesting because despite the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry, we've just seen like some really big wins for the, for the gospel in this. Paul is evidently by verse nine ready to quit. So much so that Jesus has to come to him and tell him, don't do it. He's, he's evidently deeply discouraged. He's exhausted. He's frustrated. And he's clearly fearful. We know that he's fearful because Jesus says to him four things. Number one, don't be afraid. Why would Jesus say to Paul, don't be afraid if he's not afraid? He's obviously afraid. Jesus knows his heart. He knows the, the whole thing that's going on. And he addresses this issue. Do not be afraid. The Lord has been saying that to his people for millennia. Through the Old Testament, into the New Testament. There are many, many times in the scriptures where something to the effect of do not fear or do not be afraid is, is mentioned. Now, there are some social media things out there that will claim that that phrase occurs 365 times, one for each day of the year. That's a lie. Don't believe that. That's false. It's cute, but it's not true. Um, first of all, there's a lot of problems with that, but um, 365 days was a, you know, of a year was a relatively new invention by Pope Gregory at the Gregorian calendar and all those things we can get into. But regardless... Um, the Bible does say often, do not be afraid. The point is true, though the accuracy of, of what is being said there is not true. Um, regardless, Paul needed to be reminded of that truth. Do not be afraid. Why? Because he was afraid. The second thing Jesus says to him is this, keep on speaking. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Second thing Jesus says is go on, persevere, keep going, don't give up. The third thing Jesus says is I am with you and will protect you. Verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. 
this is probably showing us what Paul's actually scared of. If, if you followed the book of Acts, you know that the, the trajectory of Paul's ministry has been, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches the gospel, some believe, most reject it, and then he gets almost killed. That's been the pattern. And so Paul is probably figuring out, okay, some people have come to faith, the synagogue has rejected me, uh, the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to kill me. And so he's fearful of that, rightly so. I mean, the guy was almost killed at one point. And so he probably has some traumatic things that are popping up in his mind and he's going, oh, this is, this is the time, I got to get out of here. So Jesus says, no, go on, persevere, I'm with you, I will protect you. And then the fourth thing Jesus says is this, there are many in this city that are mine. In other words, there are many more people who are going to come to faith in Christ. There's going to be more fruit, more salvations, so keep going. Okay, stage three, fear and weakness. Let's look at stage four, verse 11 through 17. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that is the, basically the Roman governor of this region, the Jews made an, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, that is the, the Roman court, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it for yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. All right, this is just weird, but let me, let me start by this. Okay, stage four, we'll go with this. Gen- generally this, stage four of Paul's ministry is long obedience. Jesus says, stay, keep speaking. I have many people who are, who are in the city and I'm gonna protect you. And so Paul carries on, we're told in verse 11, for another year and six months. This is by far the longest amount of time Paul has stayed anywhere up to this point in his mission journeys. Typically, he's there for weeks, maybe months at the most. Here, he's now already been there for quite some time, probably a month or two or three, and he stays yet another year and a half uh, while Jesus is encouraging him, telling him to do so. So Paul is engaging in long obedience. He keeps going. And he's demonstrating a key virtue of Christian discipleship, which is perseverance. It is crucial for us to remember this in a day and age of instant gratification that almost nothing of spiritual significance happens quickly. It takes time for you and me on an individual level to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. 
And it takes time for churches and for ministries to, to really begin to get, get some fruit going. And what Paul had been seeing up to this point is rapid fire ministry in one place to the next place to the next place. He gets to Corinth and Jesus says, hang in there, stick it out, keep going. And the fruit that's gonna come from this is gonna be glorious. And, and I just love that. I love the, the idea of, this, of Christian discipleship being long obedience. And this is how uh, Eugene Peterson, who is most famous for writing the message, but actually he wrote a ton of great books besides that one. That one's not one of his best ones. But um, Eugene Peterson wrote a book that's entitled Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And, and that was where I kind of sparked that. And I was like, this is really a great way to frame Christian discipleship. It's going in the same direction for a long time towards Jesus. And so that's verse 11, but what verses 12 through 17, kind of this strange story in here where the Jews make this united attack on Paul. They bring him to the tribunal. They, they try to get him, I don't know, arrested or crucified or something. But Galileo, this, this proconsul is like, this has nothing to do with me. Like if he was a criminal, if he did something wrong, I'd maybe deal with it but you guys are just bickering about words and names. I don't care about this. Get out of here. I have better things to do. And so this is demonstrating that Jesus is keeping up his promise to Paul to protect him and keep him safe. He gets accused of causing problems, but then the, the Roman official is like, nah, I'm not going to deal with this. And so this is what's really weird is that after they leave the tribunal, verse 17, it says they all seized. And what you expect to read next is Paul. But it says, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. But Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. And he gets saved. And so he's probably booted out. They replace him with Sosthenes. And why they grab Sosthenes and beat him in front of the tribunal, I have no idea. This is just irrational craziness, I think. And Galileo's like, I'm not paying attention to that, whatever. Don't beat that guy all you want, who cares? I, lo I like that, actually, that's funny. Um, but here you have them doing some just inexplicable thing to me. I have no idea why Sosthenes gets beat up. But you know who doesn't get beat up? Paul. And that's the point, is that Jesus is protecting Paul. He promised him, no one is going to harm you. And no one does. It's amazing. So that's step, step four is long obedience. Now let's look at the fifth step, the final stage of Paul's ministry to Corinth for now. 18 to 22. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Centrea, uh, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he let them, and he left them there, that is Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. 
So this is the final stage of Paul's mission to Corinth. It's a stage of rest and Sabbath. We're told that he's, after this whole thing with the Jews and, and uh, the, the tribunal, he stays many days longer. We don't know what that means. Another year, another few months, another two years, we don't know. Most people think his total time there was about two to three years. Um, but then he does something. He heads home. He goes back to Antioch in Syria, which is his home base. Sorry, I just activated Siri there. My fault. Syria, not Siri. Okay. Um, where am I at here? Okay, here we go. Uh, so the Apostle Paul spends his time uh, in Corinth and then he goes, goes home. He starts to travel. And we're told, we're given a couple of other stops along the way, right? No air travel, no direct routes. So he has to go to Ephesus first. He stays there briefly. He does take the opportunity to teach them. But then when they ask him to stay and continue to teach them more, he goes, no, I'm going home. Maybe I'll come back if God wants me to, but I'm not doing this. He's, he's done, right? And what I appreciate about that is that Paul is not a hurried person. He's not anxious to go, oh, the, the Ephesians need me. I'm just gonna burn myself out even more. Now he knows he's playing the long game and he knows that the Lord can care for these people without him. He does leave Priscilla and Aquila there and we don't know exactly what kind of ministry they had among them, but he goes home. He continues on. And here's what I think we need to learn from this. The, the principle that we're seeing here is that we need to guard ourselves against the constant sirens of what's urgent. Even in ministry, there are times where we need to learn how to say no. We need to learn what our capacity is, be sensitive to it. And at the end of the day, uh, it's a matter of knowing that the Lord is the Lord and we're not. I'm not your savior and you're not mine. Only Jesus is. And yes, we are called to love and serve one another and all of that biblical command is true, but we also need to know what our limits are. Sometimes Jesus puts us to work and sometimes he gives us reprieve. And that's the balance of life and ministry. Paul, Paul models that for us here. Now, Paul has obviously done a lot more than most of us have done and is obviously burnt out and spent and needs rest. But Jesus himself, who's a far better example of this than Paul is for us, modeled this in his earthly ministry. We're told in Luke 5, 16, that Jesus often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. It is a regular practice of Jesus, an often concurring issue in Jesus's life where he would go and, and get away from the crowds and spend time with the Father. And he did that by developing a habit of withdrawal so that he would have the strength to go back into the crowd. We see it in Matthew 14, 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, this is John the Baptist had been murdered by Herod. He withdrew from them, from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. At hearing that his cousin was killed, Jesus is grieving and he grieves alone. 
Matthew 14, 23, just 10 verses later, it says, after that, and after he had discussed, dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Mark 6, 31 and 32. And he said to them, come away by yourselves. He's talking to his 12 apostles to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away by boat to a desolate place by themselves. And so here Jesus and his 12 disciples go together into a withdrawal season because the ministry was so intense that they didn't even have time to eat. They were doing so much. And Jesus is like, we can't keep going like this. We got to stop. Jesus needed in his earthly life and ministry needed to rest. And if you think you don't, you're crazy. Because Jesus is God and man, and you're just man or woman. So we need to follow Jesus in this, and Paul is doing that. Now, that doesn't give us an, a, a blanket excuse for laziness in the Christian life. We recharge so we can go back into the ministry and go keep going. But there is seasons, there are, there are rests and work balances in fact, what's fascinating is that when the apostle, when the, excuse me, when the Old Testament people were exiled into Babylon, one of the key reasons God gives them for that is that you did not keep my Sabbaths. They just kept cranking along when God had commanded them to rest in seasons and ministry. They ignored him and God is like, okay, I'm gonna force you to Sabbath by kicking you out of here and making you go live among these people. And I think that that's a, there's, there's something biblical here that clearly is modeled from Jesus' Jesus's ministry. God himself establishes this pattern in the six days of creation and then the day of rest. And, and I think the principle here that we're seeing with Paul is he was no lazy dude. He worked like crazy, but then he found the time to get away from it. And, and I think that while we can maybe skew one side or the other too much, we need to find the balance in our life to walk with Jesus, to be devoted to him, to spend time in the spiritual habits of Bible meditation and prayer. If we don't give ourselves time to meditate on God's word, we're never going to drink deeply from the well of grace. That's how God speaks to us. Prayer is how we speak to God and we need to do both of those things, hear from him and speak to him. And, and we can't do that if we're not actually putting parameters in life where we can find times of solitude and rest and then get back into community and ministry. That's, that's the thing. It's not like we have to live like in monasteries and just do nothing but pray. We're not called to that. I don't think that's the biblical uh, picture of the Christian life, but we do need to find retreat and then re-engagement. Jesus does, Paul does. We need to devote daily time in the Bible and to prayer, just like Jesus did. Not as a way to check off a box, to make him love us, to earn something from him, but simply because he does love us and we need to be reminded of that. We need to find time to physically recharge as much as spiritually recharge. And I'll say this is a struggle for a lot of people. And if you're interested in working through this on a deeper level, there's a great book on that bookshelf. You don't have to pay if you don't have money. It's just fine to take. There's 
book called Reset and Refresh. It's one's for women, one's for men. It'll be obvious as you look at them. But those books have been so helpful in my life to help me think through this stuff, and it may be worth a read for some of you. But let's get all of this back down to the gospel. Because ultimately, it points us to what Christ has done. There is an ultimate gospel end that's being displayed in this issue of rest. Our Sabbath rest is ultimately and finally found in Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again, having accomplished the work for us. And he will one day usher us into eternal rest in him. Isaiah 32, 17 says that the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. That is an Old Testament promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The hope and joy of the Christian life is not, again, what we have here and now, but what is ultimately fulfilled for us in Christ. And when Jesus promises us in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, and says to us, come to me, all who labor, that is work, and are heavy laden, that is burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The ultimate rest is not found in the physical rest, though we need that because we're limited people. The ultimate goal is in Christ finding rest for our souls that the anxiousness of our souls to earn our way to God has been removed by Christ's work for us. We don't have to labor and burden ourselves by the law because Christ accomplished the law on our behalf. And we get to rest in the finished work of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection in our place for us. And what we do from that, out of that, as an overflow of that, is we pursue him in quietness and trust and peace and rest as we have opportunity to do so in our life here and now. We model that for what we will see in eternity. Okay, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you again for all that you've done for us in your life and death and resurrection. We thank you, God, that you um, love us so much that you've called us to come to you and to find our rest in you. We pray that as we respond in this moment through our singing and through our partaking of the Lord's Supper and in our, in our giving, Lord, that whatever we are doing in response to the gospel today would be flowing out of a joyful heart, a restful heart, a, a joy of confidence in you and, and that it's not in any way motivated by a desire to earn your favor. We can't do it. You've already given us fully all that we need in your righteousness. So we pray that we would respond out of gratitude to you today and help us, Lord, uh, to, to take the principles we're seeing in your word and apply them to life. And we ask for your help to navigate those things by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.